I want to read out of the 20th chapter of John, the first eight verses, the familiar story of the resurrection day. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that was, had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Now let's bow our heads for a prayer. How we need to go to that garden again today, Lord. To discover the stone has been rolled away and that He is not here, he is risen, that he is risen indeed. And may we be so filled with that truth that we will be able to live as people of the resurrection. People who have a hope, people who have a peace, but people who have a love. So come, Lord Jesus. And make yourself known to us again. For we wait for you in the name and in the spirit of Jesus, the one who really cares about us all. Amen. On February the 5th in 2017, I was in my den watching television. There were millions of people who joined me in watching that television set that evening. Because it was Super Bowl 51, I think it was. The Atlanta Falcons were playing the New England Patriots. And I was pulling for the Falcons. Delighted that at halftime they were ahead 21 to 3. Midway through the third quarter, the Falcons would score again, making the score 28 to 3. I could hear the people in Atlanta planning the victory parade up Peachtree. It was interesting to hear the uh, broadcasters using the same old cliches. Uh, Turn out the light, the party's over. Stick a fork in it, it's done. Tell the fat lady to warm up. (laughs) But as... uh, The poet laureate of the New York Yankees, Yogi Berra, said, It ain't over till it's over. And New England came storming back from a 28-3, behind 28-3, under the leadership of Tom Brady. Tied the score in the closing seconds of the game. Took the opening kickoff in overtime. 
moved the Patriots down the field, and they won the game. It's called the greatest comeback in the history of the National Football League. But we're gathered here this morning to celebrate the greatest victory in all of the history of the world. Christ, who was dead and buried, lives again. He is not here. He is risen. The greatest comeback in the history of the world. I want you to notice some things about this uh, this Resurrection Day experience. First of all, the stone is rolled away. How we need to have stones in our lives rolled away. All of us know something about running up against a brick wall. Having stones that confront us in life that are so forbidding, so hard to overcome. You can't go around them, you can't go over them, you can't go through them. We know something, don't we, about that type of a thing. There are also some heavy stones that we often carry in life. Those angers, those bitternesses, those prejudices that weigh us down. No one is happy with that kind of thing in their life. But Jesus, you need to understand, majors in dealing with stones, in rolling away the burdens, in taking them away if we will but surrender them with him. We need to leave some stuff with Jesus, don't we? We need to let go of those stones that we've been carrying around. We need to ask him to roll the stones away that forbid us from having life at its fullest and its best. We need Jesus to turn those those stumbling blocks into stepping stones. And this scripture reminds us that we have a God who takes care of the stones in our lives if we will but allow him. But then I I want you to notice the tossed-aside grave cloths. I like, you you know, when you read the Gospel of John, you, you see how he wrote with such detail. In this passage of Scripture, for instance, he writes about how the the women came back and said they've taken the body of Jesus. And how... Two disciples, Simon Peter and the one whom Jesus loved. He's, that's how he refers to himself. There's a bit of humility in that. Jesus loves me more than he loves you, you know, type thing. Kind of reminds me of some Baptists I know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> but that's how he refers to himself. And he, the younger of the two, who is John, Outruns the old old guy. These two guys over here always outrun me. You know, I can't keep up with them, but that's okay. That he runs ahead of them. The younger doesn't go into the tomb. You notice, but Peter doesn't hold back. He goes directly into the tomb, and John describes what he sees. He sees the tossed aside grave cloths. 
And one of them that covers the face of Jesus, had covered the face of Jesus, was neatly folded. What great detail that is. But I want you to notice some things about the tomb and and those toss-aside grave cloths. I had had a preacher friend that uh, had an Easter sermon in which he said this. Jesus was a great borrower. He borrowed a boat and used it as a pulpit to preach from the lake. He borrowed a, a donkey to enter the city on Jer- in, uh, Jerusalem. He borrowed it, but he gave it back to him. He borrowed the disciples' coats to make a saddle on the donkey. He borrowed those coats, but he gave them back to him. And Jesus borrowed some grave cloths. And he borrowed a tomb, but he gave it back. And they were only, he said, slightly used. So I want you to notice that grave cloths are not needed by a living Savior. A grave is not needed by a living Savior. So then we, we need to hear the echo from the tomb. And the echo is, he is not here, he is risen. I, uh, some years ago, uh, my father, my father was, uh, had a great influence on my life. He was a, a Methodist preacher. In fact, he was a bishop of the church. At one time, he was the bishop of the Florida Conference from 1948 to 1952. And uh, had a great influence on my life. But when he was 92 years of age, the doctors, uh, the doctors had him in the hospital and uh, sent word through my mother that the family should gather, uh, that the doctor wanted to talk to us as a family unit. One of my brothers lived in Nashville, Tennessee, where my father was in the hospital. My mother called me. I was living here at the time. I flew up to be at his bedside. My other brother was in Illinois, and he drove down. And we had, came to the appointed hour, and the doctor met us there. My mother, my two brothers, my dad. And uh, the doctor and my father had been friends for a long time. They'd known each other through the church as well as because he was a doctor. And the doctor explained to him, he said, Bishop, I just want you to know that I've done nearly everything I can for you. There may be something else I could do, but... It's very experimental, and I wouldn't want to put you through it if you were my dad. So I'm just going to let you, I'm going to turn you over to the Lord now and let him take care of you the rest of your life. My brother, my oldest brother, was very inquisitive, and he said, well, doctor, I have some questions to ask. He said, how long will it be? And he said, I don't know, it won't be long, maybe two, three months at the most. And he said, well, will it be very painful? He said, no. He would just uh, go to sleep one day and not wake up here. He'll wake up in glory. And uh, with that, my dad said, uh, well, doctor, I want to thank you. 
You've been a good friend. You've been a good doctor. And uh, I'm, I'm of the resurrection, he said. So uh, my life has always been in the hands of Jesus. And I want to thank you for what you've done for me, but I want you to know that I'm okay. And with that, the doctor left. My father did what the patriarchs of the faith have always done. He then began to bless each of us. And I watched him as he first put his hands upon my mother. She knelt by his bed. There was a glow that came upon him that I have rarely seen in anyone. It was a certain, uh, a certain peace that uh, expressed itself on his face. A certain even joy that was there. As he blessed my mother, then he blessed my two older brothers, and I was blessed last because I was the youngest, sort of the runt, always the last one in line. When he put his hand upon me and blessed me, I have no idea what he said because my ears were filled with my tears as my dad laid his hands on me one more time. When he was through, I... The room was filled with emotion, of course. And I said, Dan, uh, hoping for some levity, I said, now you can have anything to eat you want. You've been on this strict diet, now you can eat whatever you want. How would you like a, a big ice cream sundae, chocolate fudge, whipped cream, nuts, and a cherry on top? He said, well, that would be nice, but you can't bring that into the hospital. I said, Dad, I've smuggled stuff into worse places than this. You tell me whatever you want. I'm going to bring it to you. And with that glow in his face, I listened in eager anticipation with what he would want to eat. He said, you mean that? I said, I mean it. He said, I want a crystal hamburger. I said, a, a crystal hamburger. You know what they are, those things that taste like sawdust with mustard. <laughs> so I drove 20 miles and bought a sack full of them, brought them back to his house, back, brought them back to the hospital. And in his room, we had a glorious picnic. That aura of his, that glow of his never went away. It was even increased as he ate one of those crystal hamburgers. There was a peace, a certainty about it all. He had heard the echo. He had heard the echo from the tomb. He is not here. He is risen. But then I want you to hear the promise that comes from the empty tomb. Because I live. He says, you shall live also. When Claire had been told she didn't have much longer to live, she had breast cancer. I took her to Germany. I'd heard there was some special treatment that they had over there for breast cancer. But it was too late. After we tried our best over there, the doctor said, told me, she won't be able to go home from here. So um, 
a call to family. Our daughter was six months pregnant with twins, and we had prayed and hoped that we would be able, she would be able to hold them, but that would not happen. But she and her husband made their way too, as well as my other children, and we gathered at her bedside. We sang our favorite hymns, and we prayed prayers together and quoted scripture. And then she too did what the ancient patriarchs did. She blessed each of us. She put her hands upon my pregnant daughter with those twins and prayed a blessing upon them as well. Finally, she said, I want to thank everybody for coming and being here. And uh, then she, uh, she said, I have the promise. I want you to know. I have the promise. She said, I have the promise. I have the promise. I have the promise. And slipped into a final coma. It was important that she say those three things three times. Because in biblical days, it meant you had a contract. If you said, like Simon Peter said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him three times. His contract was broken. But later he would say, yes, Lord, I love you three times. The contract was renewed. Somewhere along the line, Claire knew that. So her testimony was, I have the promise. I have the promise. I have the promise. The contract was made. And what was that promise? Because I live, you shall live also. Great day in the morning. We have a guarantee. We have a great guarantee that comes from the empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen. Because I live, you shall live also. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's the truth. Amen. Amen. And now may the blessings of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you, and keep you in his peace, grace, and glory, now and forever and forever and forevermore. Amen.